When I was growing up, I think I mentioned, I was constantly told to count to 10 and I never understood why. And it's only through kind of the self, um, or the journey that I have been on, that I've realised that breathing is really important. Sounds obvious, we do it every day. But the control that that brings to your nervous system and your ability to kind of tolerate the threat state and any triggers is so important. And it takes no time at all, it takes no resource. And I think whether or not you are in private practice or you're in-house, people enjoy working with other people that they feel a connection with. And it's very hard to connect with someone if you can't experience their personality. So don't feel like you have to leave all of that at the door. Bring it in. And then I took on the return leg to a legal conference. I'll never forget her face. Um, and we were sat there and I looked at her and she was aghast. And I said, you're all right. And she was like, I don't get it. And I was like, what don't you get? And she said, they're just talking at us. Are you learning things? And I was like, not really, no. And at that moment, I kind of thought, there's a way of doing this differently. Hello, I'm Ian Rodwell, host of the Linklater's Ideas Foundry, where we talk about and try to unpick the art of working together in the 21st century organisation. So what connects tarot cards, a former helicopter pilot and a money mindset coach? Well, the clue might lie in my next guest. When I first met Claire Sanders, she was a general counsel, but was already setting out on an exciting new journey to harness the discipline of human factors to maximise performance minimise risk and optimise well-being. And in pursuit of this, she has been talking to some fascinating people. So when Claire agreed to come along and chat to me, I jumped at the chance. So Claire, welcome to the Ideas Foundry. Thank you very much Ian, it's lovely to be here, thanks for the invite. Well, I alluded to this journey, so do tell us about the path that brings you from then to today. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm definitely one of those people who've got a squiggly career. So um, I took a very traditional path into law, kind of did my law degree, private practice in the city for a number of years. Um, was an M&A lawyer and, and quickly realised that what I really enjoyed um, was talking to, <laughs> to non-lawyers. Um, you know, when we were doing a due diligence and I was talking to a marketing director or the finance director or someone in the manufacturing team, I just loved it. So um, ultimately I left and moved in-house initially to a engineering and manufacturing company. And then really more by luck, I think, than judgment, I ended up um, at Nintendo, which for a lot of people, I mean, I'm not a gamer, but for a lot of people that was kind of like everyone's dream. And then I moved to another consumer brand, but much smaller, which was Brompton, and then most recently was at Huel. Um, and I think throughout that journey, I had um, been really fascinated by the interaction of people and um, personalities of lawyers and how we are taught and how we are developed as lawyers um, and the challenges I think that you experience as a lawyer. Um, as a junior lawyer I was, I think I suffered a lot from imposter syndrome in many respects, like I was, I didn't feel like I was the brightest in the room, I felt like I was surrounded by people who were more articulate than me, who had a better grasp on their emotions, um, I was the kid who was always caught 
told to count to 10 or, you know, I, I, be less passionate, be less, don't get so annoyed, don't let it bother you. Um, and so I became really fascinated by kind of how we can maximise those skills and, and whether or not they have a place for us within the legal profession. So now you, you call your company Being Human mm. and it is an intriguing name. So I, I think you've given a clue already, but so t t tell me more about the thinking behind that. So at the core of Being Human is really um, taking the way that we as humans are all hardwired. So the things that are we are born with, that our ancestors had, that the cavemen had, um, this fight, flight, fawn, millions of Fs now I think you can add to it, but essentially taking those hardwiring, understanding them, teaching people to understand why they respond in certain ways, and then showing people how they can um, react in a more positive manner and they can adapt their intrinsic human um, elements so that they can maximise their performance rather than being derailed by it. So that's where the name comes from. It's essentially understanding how we're wired as humans and then how you can maximise that. And do you think the, the legal profession faces a particular challenge in being human? Are there other professions that might face a similar similar difficulties? I think I think the legal profession gets a hard rap because I think that a lot of people automatically think that lawyers aren't humans, um, which I think is unfair, largely unfair. Um, but I think ultimately any high pressure team, and you know, and clearly legal professionals fall into that, but any high pressure team has the capacity to um, lose sight of how important human skills are. So a lot of the lot of the learnings that we have, and it's really important to us that we have this cross-industry learning. So, you know, my sister, who's my co-founder, is from the veterinary industry. Um, she did a master's in human factors, and human factors derives from aviation and other um, safety critical industries like oil rigs. Um, it's now being incorporated within medicine. So I think any of these high-performing teams where you're in a high-pressured environment, um, which includes lawyers, have a capacity not to not be human, but to an opportunity to maximise their human skills, I think. And that, that's, that's really interesting, that, that cognitive diversity mm. that comes from <laughs> that exposure. And I just wonder, when you think about your time in private practice, as opposed to your time in-house, I guess in-house you're going to be part of a bigger organisation that isn't geared up just to do the law. Mm. Obviously it's doing something, it's producing games or whatever. Does that make it easy? Does it give you more exposure to different ways of thinking? Absolutely. So I think this is, when you're surrounded by, I mean one of the, one of the reasons I chose to be a solicitor, I considered being a barrister, but one of the reasons I chose to be a solicitor was that I loved the fact that you were surrounded by a group, a community of other lawyers. I mean, you, you join as a training contract, you automatically got a group of people who are going through exactly the same thing as you at the same time. You know, translate that through to your NQ years and your associate years, it's the same thing. And that's awesome. But the problem is, you're all lawyers. Most of the time you've had a very similar background and a similar upbringing. You've gone to similar style universities. So you do kind of operate in this bit of a, um, in a vacuum really, or in an echo chamber certainly. And then you go in house and you realize that everybody has different backgrounds, 
different expertise. You know, you do a, you can do these personality tests, and you've got the lawyers and accountants who might be on the red scale, but you've got the marketeers who might be the green or the yellow, and it's it's really refreshing to kind of understand that people have very different ways of coming at problems and very different ways of you know, different outlooks about what's important and measures of success as well. So I think that was probably, it's very insightful of you, and I think that was probably the first step in my understanding that different viewpoint is actually really helpful for you as a lawyer um, and takes you out of your normal lane and you can learn a lot from the way that other people do stuff. So you've you've left your in-house world and you've started off on this uh, on this venture what is one thing that has surprised you and one thing that you have learned since starting the, the business I think in terms of what surprised me from a personal perspective how creative I am I never considered myself to be a creative person ever you know and yet my sister and co-founder is it kind of picks me up and she's like can you we, you've got so many ideas we ju we just need to kind of streamline them and i feel like i think it's probably because i found something that i'm incredibly passionate about passionate about um that it, i'm i'm constantly buzzing with ways that we can develop things and i've ne i've never thought of myself in that way as sort of a creative individual so i think that's one thing that has really surprised me um and maybe surprised but also learned for learnt along the way is it's kind of restored my faith in humanity in certain respects. So when we, we embarked on this this journey, I reached out to loads of people, yourself included Ian, you know, through LinkedIn, people I've never known, never met before. And I was just so keen to speak to as many people about possible about different aspects of being a human in a legal profession um, from different industries as well. And of the hundreds of people I've spoken to, I can count on one hand the number of people who said, no, I'm too busy or um, I'm not interested in having a conversation. So many people were willing to give up their time to have this conversation. And that surprised me. Maybe that's a bit bit sad that it surprised me but it also was fascinated and like just I think I've learned so much from so many people just in the past what year 18 months and it really surprised me that you said that you, that you didn't think that you were creative so looking at everything that you've done it just screams creativity and I just wonder do you think the you were doing creative things when you were working in-house, when you were working private practice, but they weren't seen as creative or you didn't perceive them as creative? Or do you think it was more that there weren't the same opportunities to be creative? I think I have always had the potential to be a creative lawyer because I think I've been an in-house lawyer. I wouldn't say I'm your... I never put myself out as kind of being the typical lawyer, like the typical in-house lawyer. So. Not sure whether I should should publicise this on a podcast, but I hate drafting, you know, and I don't consider myself very good at it at all. So in interviews, when I'm interviewed for roles, people are like, you know, what are you good at? What are you not good at? Those dreadful HR questions, and I'm like, oh, drafting, hate drafting. And you can see like the CEOs and CFOs kind of taking a shift back and going, who have we got here? But that's not 
the lawyer that I am. Like I'm the lawyer who has uh, the bigger picture. I really enjoy talking to people. It's a huge passion of mine. So I think maybe I was creative in kind of the not the typical legal professional. But I also think that potentially my creativity, I didn't recognise it as creativity as at the time when I was in private practice. I just saw it as thinking differently and potentially not fitting in because of it. You know, I was the one who challenged things like, um, probably spoke out too loud and probably didn't know how to challenge them in the most constructive way, but you know, why are we doing it like this? Why, why am I, you know, why are we staying up all night to do something? Couldn't we just do it tomorrow? It seems like really basic questions, but I always seem to be the person asking them. Um, and I think I probably challenged it in the way that was not constructive. And to be honest, that forms the root of some of the communications training we do is how to have those conversations in a constructive way. Um, but yeah, I suppose on reflection, maybe I was more creative than I gave myself credit for. Okay. Now, you ran an event earlier in the year. Do you want to sort of tell us a bit more about that event? And you know, were you surprised with the reaction that you, that you got to it? So I was looking yeah. at everything on LinkedIn and there was a room full of kind of beaming, energised people. So yeah. tell us about that and how you put it together. So when we embarked on this project, um, my sister, obviously, I mentioned she's in the veterinary industry, and she said to me, you should come to this veterinary congress in Birmingham that she was speaking at. And so I went along, and it was a three-day event, like thousands, I think probably 2,000 people of vets and veterinary nurses there, and it was dedicated to thriving. And so I went along as kind of the outsider, and I sat in on some of the sessions, and they were brilliant. They were sessions on tangible skills for um, anyone in the veterinary industry about how to communicate, how to have courageous conversations, about priority management, and I learned a lot. And then I took on the return leg to a legal conference, <laughs> and I'll never forget her face. Um, and we were sat there, and I looked at her, and she was aghast, and I said, you're all right? And she was like, I don't get it. <laughs> I was like, what don't you get? And she said, they're just talking at us. Are you learning things? And I was like, not really, no. And at that moment, I kind of thought, there's a way of doing this differently. I think there's space here for a conference that takes, or an event that takes the really practical skills that we aren't taught every day, and, and, and putting them in a format like an event, and making it a really engaging, informative session that people leave having actually learned something. So that really put the wheels in motion for How to Thrive. Um, again, I think this was probably me being a bit of a bull in the china shop. There was a lot of rolling of eyes by my sister, I think, when I said to her, let's do an event, it'll be fine, we'll do 100 people. Um, and we went to, uh, we held it in Woolwich, and that was very important to me um, because I wanted to take people out of the corporate environment. Um, held it in an old fireworks factory, which was amazing. And we were blown away by the people who came. We, we left it very broad. We had uh, about 50% in-house and then 25% private practice, 25% other. And um, yeah, we were blown away by the reaction from people. Well, of all the places to be blown away, I guess a fireworks factory <laughs> is going to yeah. be the, the, obvious, yeah. the obvious place to, to do it. Okay, so there you are. You have run this successful conference in an old fireworks factory. Uh, but now you've got your own podcast mm. coming out next year. And you've provided a little bit of a teaser 
in terms of you, your guests. And you said, what does tarot reading, a former combat helicopter pilot and a money mindset coach all have in common? Now, I guess we'll have to wait uh, for the full answer, but is there a bit of a hint you can give us? And I am particularly intrigued by the tarot reading. Mm. I was expecting a pack of cards to come out, the major and minor arcana <laughs> spread all over the table. Um, well, I think that, that I mean, I, it's, it's not a very well-kept secret at all, but it all comes back to this point about cognitive diversity and the fact that I'd had all these brilliant conversations over the past year. And I was really keen to bring those conversations to as many people as possible. And so it's about bringing together loads of different thought leaders on different perspectives on how we can thrive. So we've got an um, ex-combat fighter pilot who really incorporated mindfulness into her, her flight, flying and her career, um, albeit that she didn't call it mindfulness because she thought she'd, she'd put her fellow pilots off um, adopting her practices. We've got a money mindset coach who talks to us about financial well-being. I think we're, we're very shy about talking about money, but actually money and uh, financial wellness is really important for our resilience. We've got... Um, the tarot reading Lady Victoria, who is phenomenal. She's a transpersonal, she's studying transpersonal psychology. And it's all about kind of getting out of your head and into your body and your intuition and your gut. Um, and for me, that is fantastic and really eye-opening about all these different disciplines. I mean, we've got people coming up, um, who I'm not going to spoil it, but we've got a phenomenal person coming up to talk about communication, which you just is so left field my sister just thought I that was the final point at which I'd lost the plot um, but you know it's just it's just about gathering people from other disciplines other industries bringing them on and talking about things that lawyers probably aren't used to hearing about um, I know that you've kindly agreed to, to come on and now we're recording it in a podcast you have to um, <laughs> to talk about liminal space which again is something that people don't think about they don't think about the importance of that when you're talking about um, thriving generally um, so it's, it's about giving people an insight into other ways that they might be able to, other practices they might be able to incorporate into their, their um, daily life and professional life. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to both listening to the podcast and to coming on to the podcast, but going beyond podcasts, where would you like to go with the Being Human message in 2024? <laughs> Um, TV series? <laughs> yeah, World Tower Oyster. Um, ultimately, we just want to grow it. We want to grow it and we want to make it as accessible to as many people as possible. And that's really at the heart of what this is about. Um, I wanted to, st I wanted to, or we want to empower people to be able to, to develop their, their human skills almost independently of, their, of the need of their own companies. So without having to rely on those, it's about developing their, their um, being able to take autonomy over it, um, which is why we're doing the podcast, which will flow into masterclasses and courses that people can subscribe to themselves. Um, they don't need to rely on a massive budget to be able to do it, um, which I think is, is really important. You know, and we'll, and we'll see where it goes from there. We've got another event planned for March, um, which we're splitting down so that we can really drill down into the challenges specifically that juniors might have and that seniors have. Um, and then, um, yeah, I think, I think we'll, we'll see where 24, 24 goes after that, I suppose. But um, there's a lot 
on my to-do list that I'd like to achieve. It's just working out where to start. That, that, that sounds great. Now, I've got a final question for you, um, which, which, which might be a, a little bit tricky because I don't think I've, I've given you a chance to prepare for this, but what would be your three tips or your three bits of advice for a lawyer or indeed anyone who is listening to this who wants to bring some of that being human practice into their mm. into their lives so my first one would be to take the time to pause when i was growing up i think i mentioned i was constantly told to count to 10 and i never understood why and it's only through kind of the self um or the journey that I have been on that I've realised that breathing is really important. Sounds obvious, we do it every day. But the control that that brings to your nervous system and your ability to kind of tolerate the threat state and any triggers is so important and it takes no time at all, it takes no resource. So kind of my top tip was you take that breath, you've always got more time than you think you have. You can always go to the loo or take a drink of water in any situation, it's just remember to take that breath. I think it's really important. The second one would be not to shy away from being yourself. And I'm not saying to be yourself and ignore others around you. I'm saying don't feel that you have to leave all of your personality at home. And I say that not just from my being human hat on in terms of how to thrive, but also as an in-house lawyer. And I think whether or not you are in private practice or you're in-house, people enjoy working with other people that they feel a connection with. And it's very hard to connect with someone if you can't experience their personality. So don't feel like you have to leave all of that at the door. Bring it in. And if you're in private practice, it's incredibly important because I think we're getting to a point, I certainly was at that point in-house, where you worked with people you felt like you connected with, that you felt like you had a relationship with. It wasn't really based on their technical skills at all. It was all based on, on them and their values and their ability to connect with you. So I think let that shine through and don't be scared of it. Um, so my third advice would be don't be scared to admit a mistake. Demonstrate some vulnerability and don't feel like you have to have all the answers all of the time. I think that's a real weakness of the legal profession, that somewhere in our training we are built to believe that we need to have all the answers um, and surprise, surprise, we don't because even partners don't have all the answers all the time. Um, and I think it's really important for the growth of the industry that we acknowledge when we don't know something and we work together to find an answer. You know, acknowledge that vulnerability, that fallibility. Um, and if you look at places like aviation, that's exactly what they do. And they have one of the, you know, they have a fantastic safety um, rate now as a result because they're not scared of acknowledging mistake or not knowing something. And I think that's, that's really important for, for 
high performance teams, but also for um, the growth of the industry. Claire, thank you very much. That is fantastic advice, and I'm very much looking forward to the podcast, and I'm now going to crack out the tarot cards. So thank you very much for coming along. Thank you very much. Thank you.